Thank you for listening, but I want you to know that I am not a professional when it comes to any of the topics I go over on the show. Please always be skeptical about what you hear on podcasts and everything that you see on the social medias. I also need to warn you that I swear. I don't think I'm vulgar or anything, but when I get excited or passionate, the cuss words just flow out sometimes, and I don't edit them out, so listener discretion is advised. situation here in Hawaii earlier this evening. The uh, civil defense calling for an evacuation of all low-lying areas because of a tsunami threat. Sky turns black as giant tornadoes touch down from Nebraska to Good day, everybody. I am in my closet, and it is a very, very hot day. I wasn't sure if I was going to get a chance to record this episode in time. Everyone's home all the time again. School is all at home. I live with other people. No one wants to let me turn the air conditioner off. (laughs) I guess I don't blame them. It's been in like the 30s last few days, but I need to get my shit done, man. Anyway, I think I've got an opportunity here. I've got a nice pack on the floor that I can put my feet on, and I'm going to give it a go. I am very happy to announce that my entire family has now been for round one of vaccinations. It's given me the sense of a light at the end of the tunnel, you know? My mood is lightening just a little bit. I'm getting out in the yard for hours at a time now, too, which I think is also helping my mental state. I felt the beginnings of slipping away again not long ago. That's how I think of it when I start to go into depression. But shortly after, it started to get nicer out, and I was able to get out to work in the yard again. After a few days and evenings outside, I didn't feel like I was going to slip away anymore. I got excited about the sage coming up and my build plans for the other side of the yard this year. I got inspired again, made some new plans, and really started to look forward to summer. Everyone is different, but for me, I have to recognize that having projects and having things to look forward to are big parts of keeping depression at bay. It's part of why I picked up the podcast again on my own, even without any of the proper equipment to do so. The ongoing project is good for me mentally. I haven't even looked at a stat in over six months. Don't get me wrong, I would love for people to listen but I also just kind of want to do it, whether anyone's listening or not. If someone out there gets something out of it and joins me on my journey, though, then that's fucking awesome. So thank you to those who chose to listen in today, and especially those who have subscribed to listen every two weeks. I hope you and your loved ones are all doing well and also seeing a light at the end of this long COVID tunnel. Supplements are a commonly covered issue in the skeptical community, but I've never talked about them before. For those of you out there who cry foul when it comes to government regulations, people like you are the reason these and other natural health products get away with as much as they do. Several years ago, a consumer affairs group tested the contents of several supplements from pharmacy shelves, and their findings were all over the place. There were actually products that did not contain any of the main ingredient listed. And worse, There were products which contained ingredients that were not listed on the label at all. Hello, allergies. In reading articles at sciencebasedmedicine.org, I came across the fact that another round of testing has been done. This time, it was an audit of Health Canada and its processes for approvals. Health Canada should be ashamed of what I'm about to share with you. Natural products industries have fought regulations tooth and nail in the U.S. and Canada and with ridiculous success to the detriment of Canadians. 
Canada likes to brag that it actually has licensing required to sell these products. But while they say a manufacturer must submit evidence of their claims, this has been tested and the results were fucking embarrassing. An outside investigating group made up claims to submit about a made up product. No actual product was ever produced or ever existed. This was all completely fake. For their submitted evidence, they photocopied some pages out of an old homeopathy textbook and turned those in. No real product, no manufacturing site, made up benefits, photocopies from old homeopathy textbooks submitted. Sounds like it would be impossible to get that licensed, right? The product didn't even exist, so obviously no trials were conducted and no safety data was provided. This fake product was approved without question. What the fuck? It gets even worse. This fake product was not only licensed as a natural health product, but it got listed in a national database of health products that Health Canada declared were, quote, safe, effective, and of high quality. Oh my gosh, Health Canada, shame on you. Let's have some science and skepticism in government and regulations, please. According to the Science-Based Medicine article, which came out on May 13th, by the way, in case you want to go look for it, these natural health products share the shelves and pharmacies with over-the-counter actual medicines, which are actually regulated at very high standards. It gives them the illusion of being on the same level as those properly approved medications. How is this allowed? Only someone who knows to look and who knows what to look for and who is willing to take the time to squint at the tiny writing on all the bottles is going to be able to tell if a product is licensed by the bullshit natural health standards or actual over-the-counter medicine standards. Yet here's the difference. For over-the-counter drugs, Health Canada has to approve not just the product, but the manufacturing site as well. And these both have to have regular check-ins. Manufacturers must demonstrate that they meet GMP standards. GMP stands for Good Manufacturing Practices. To qualify as meeting those standards, accuracy, precision, and safety all have to be ensured. And the people and processes have to be fully tested and qualified. Those are your basic over-the-counter drugs. These contain real ingredients that really do shit. For natural health products, Health Canada does not pre-inspect facilities that manufacture the products and do not follow up after either. They leave it to attestations and documentations provided by the applying source. This shit is easily faked as the test with the fake product has clearly proven. Fuck Health Canada, this one has me mad. What the hell? You could learn a lot from other countries. Australia and Europe both regulate supplements and natural health products, and they actually check in on manufacturers on established cycles. Health Canada can't do check-ins at this point because of their habit of approving everything for no good reason. Now they have something like 92,000 licenses out there, and they can't handle the follow-up. Most of those 92,000 probably never should have received approval in the first place. This is such a long-running fuck-up. Before I go on, I should say I keep saying 92,000, but that's from memory. I can't find my note with the number on it, so it's possible I'm remembering it wrong, but I'm pretty sure it was around that number. So what's happened is with such high over-approval, when Health Canada did finally decide to start taking action, 
they were only able to inspect 6% of active licensed companies between 2017 and 2019. 6%! The rest just keep getting away with whatever they are getting away with. What are they getting away with? Well, of the 6% that did get inspected, they had to take regulatory actions on almost half of them. Many due to significant health issues. Seven site licenses and five products were actually outright cancelled. Again, probably products that never should have been approved in the first place, Health Canada. In 2019, they did another round where the sites of two recently released products from each of 35 different companies were inspected. Every single site had issues reported. These issues included expired raw materials, unacceptable amounts of contaminants, and product tests which did not confirm expire dates. Regulatory action had to be taken on half of them for serious violations. That's just 70 products out of 92,000 folks. So this most recent audit probably didn't surprise Health Canada all that much. I think they know they messed up and know they're at the point where the earlier light legislation of these products have allowed it to get out of control. The point of the audit was to see if products approved by Health Canada were safe and accurately represented to Canadians. What they did was examine the licensing process for both products and manufacturing sites, verifying if Health Canada obtained enough information in each case to deem it worth selling. and if Health Canada checked up at all after the licensing to ensure the continuance of proper practices. And it was bad. Of 25 pulled site licenses, Health Canada relied on inspections from other countries for 13 of them. In 10 of the 13, there were no assurances of health product manufacturing processes included in those inspections at all. In the remaining 12, Health Canada failed to verify one or more components that would demonstrate good manufacturing practices in any of them. Oh my gosh, they couldn't even verify that the products being licensed to be sold were being manufactured in the sites being inspected. Ah! Then, once serious issues would start to arise with the product, Health Canada did not respond except when receiving direct complaints. They did nothing to prevent misleading or inaccurate information from being given to consumers by manufacturers. That is not protecting us at all. When 75 licensed products for sale on Canadian websites were checked, 88% of them had misleading product information on the containers. 56% were marketed with misleading label information. There were health claims on labels not authorized by Health Canada. There was a statement on one label that a product was recommended for ages three and up, when it was only actually approved for use in adolescents and adults. There were products which did not contain a complete list of risks. There were products which did not contain a complete list of ingredients. Risk and safety information was way too difficult to read on many of the packages. There are rules in the licensing about risks and safety being clearly marked. Health Canada did not proactively monitor if label information and advertisements met license conditions. What the fuck? Why are you giving licenses if you're not bothering to check if they meet your conditions? Ah! So the fact is, natural health products on the shelf in Canada right now do not have the regulatory responsibilities to produce safe, effective products which contain all and only the ingredients declared on the label. 
and about those healthier choice all natural labels. Just fucking ignore those. Even on non-natural health products, there are so many natural-based labels out there trying to get you to pay more money for no real reason. Is natural safer or better for you? Um, no. Guess what? Arsenic is fucking natural. Is an all-natural label better to go for? No. There are so many more factors that need to be taken into account, like spraying heavy metals on crops as a natural pest deterrent. Because of lack of regulations, this is another thing that does not have to be declared on the label. Is a non-GMO label worth paying more money for? No! These labels are there to suck the naive in to paying more. Half the products marked GMO are products that do not even have GMO varieties available. But if they split up their batches and mark half the products non-GMO, they can charge a bit more for the same fucking thing. Oh, and by the way, we're actually at a point where GMOs are the safest foods we have access to. All issues have been tested and proven groundless, and they are the most tested and regulated foods on the market, making them the safest. So unfortunately, the audit summary was that Canadians cannot trust what is on the labels of supplements and natural health products. And that sucks. The good news is that apparently Health Canada agrees with the findings of the audit. They know they fucked things up. We can't know if they will act on it at all, but at least they aren't denying it, I guess. They admit their mess. So remember, the next time you see a health claim of any kind in giant letters on a label that grabs your attention, be skeptical, damn it. Glacial retreat is a topic that has and will come up again and again. Study after study continues to agree that it continues to be an issue. Now we have the most detailed and comprehensive study yet, which analyzed all of the world's glaciers except for Greenland and the Arctic sheets, which are already known concerns for sea level rise. That's about 220,000 glaciers. A satellite launched by NASA in 1999 was used to accumulate the information for the study. They were able to show how quickly mass has been lost over the past two decades. Not only have they confirmed that almost all of the world's glaciers are shrinking, but that the rate at which this is happening is also increasing. While earlier in the 21st century, the world was losing 227 gigatons of glacier per year, between 2015 and 2019, it was closer to 298 gigatons per year. So it's not just happening, but it's happening faster. The estimation is that the loss is accelerating about 48 gigatons per decade, with the greatest losses happening in Alaska, Iceland, and the Alps. Glaciers are very susceptible to climate change and provide early warning signs, which is why there is so much interest in studying them. But before I end this segment, I want to share another serious factor which I was previously ignorant of. Normal glacial melt provides water to people, apparently billions of people. The runoff creates annual streams of water required to keep the land watered and the people and animals in those locations alive. The Himalayans, for example, have a severe dry season during which glacial melt keeps major waterways running that might otherwise go nearly dry. When the glaciers are gone, so will be the water supply for every single glacial-dependent area. This affects billions of people. Glacial loss is a serious climate issue, but it is also a very serious humanitarian issue. If you care at all about people outside of your circle, this should matter to you. 
No newer, cute, or funny-looking creatures this episode, but I do have a couple weird facts to share. One about the sexes of animals being determined by temperature, and one about a flower that fools beetles into mating with it. Starting with the animals. This effective temperature on the sex of some reptiles, fish, and amphibians has been known about for some time. I have to admit, I never heard about it before. But it has re-entered science news lately because nobody knew why or how temperatures were determining the birth sexes of these creatures until this recent discovery. Way back in 1966, a zoologist noticed that the temperatures seemed to be affecting the sexes of the babies of a species of sub-Saharan lizard. He observed that when temperatures were as high as 29 degrees Celsius or higher, the embryos were more likely to develop into males. When around the 26 or 27 range, the embryos were more likely to develop into females. Since this first recorded discovery, scientists have recorded other cases of what is called environmental sex determination in dozens of reptiles, as well as some fish and amphibians. One example is alligators. When their embryos develop at or below 30 degrees Celsius, females tend to be the result. Developing in hotter temperatures will more likely result in males. In most recent studies, scientists have mapped out the molecular and genetic processes of environmental sex determination in bearded dragons. One of my favorite animals. You know, they wave. I love bearded dragons. Anyways, so in bearded dragons specifically, they discovered that there are two separate paths that lead to the sex of a baby. One of those paths is based just on genetics. So most people would understand that in grade school terms as XX or XY. There are actually a lot more combinations than those two, but that's for another segment. For a bearded dragon, the letters that represent the sex are ZZ, male, and ZW, female. But they have a second possible pathway where the sex ends up being temperature dependent. For bearded dragons, if the embryos are developing in cooler temperatures, then chromosomes make the call. One sequence will make males, the other will make females, as normal. But when temperatures go up, a completely different set of genes often overrides the development of chromosomally male embryos. And the end result are females. A female of this type is labeled ZZ reversed. Remember, ZZ is regular male and ZW regular female. So the conclusion is that global warming will have the effect of a greater number of female than male bearded dragons being hatched and will have similar effects on dozens of other wild critters. You can find this study in the open source journal Plus One. Next, I have a story of discovery, comedy, passion, loss, and hope. Only 11 specimens of the white and magenta orchid have been recorded since the 1800s. For decades, the only things to study were botanical sketches and one slide from 1966. It's my understanding that the slide was fuzzy and mostly useless. So with all that in mind, when one was spotted in 2016, enthusiasts and scientists came from all over the world to watch, guard, study, and protect it. There's the discovery part of the story. While one enthusiast biologist was observing just after the flower had opened one day, they saw an insect land and appear to mate with the flower. Actually, they said it was quite obvious that it was mating with the flower, and they decided they had to know more. These sexually deceptive orchids, as I saw them referred to, release a chemical that is irresistible to longhorn beetles. 
When they open up, the chemical is released and the Beatles come to get off. There's the passion and maybe even the comedy part of the story. It turns out there are other orchid species, which also use sex pheromones to attract both bees and wasps, but this is the first known beetle. The point, in case it isn't obvious, is to trick the insects into assisting with pollination. An evolutionary biologist who specializes in deceptive pollination in orchids, that's a very specific specialty, who knew? Stephen Johnson said that the beetles tend to land right after opening, when the scent will be most intense. He stated that they are not looking for flowers at this time. They are definitely looking for females. And it's not just the scent, but the physical fit as well. The purple inner part of the flower fits perfectly under the male beetle when it lands. After landing, they can be seen biting and stroking the petals as they would with a female in mating. And we know for sure they're being fooled because samples tested actually show the beetle ejaculated. A lot of interest and study of this flower eventually led to the belief that the chemical in its molecular structure had been identified. To test this belief, a synthetic version of the sex signal was sent to South Africa. This test was a complete success. When the valve with the synthetic chemical was opened, the beetles started flying in within minutes. There was some mention of future research based around how the flower may affect the populations of the beetles as well as their evolution. There are also endeavors to find a female. You can't attract a female as you can a male, so this isn't easy. They want to get a sample of the actual beetle pheromones to see how close the flower and synthetic version actually come. Now for the loss. Deceptive orchids are very rare, and this was the only known living of its kind. Well, one day it was gone, and a hole was left in its place. Either an animal or a human had come along and dug it up. Can you imagine the devastation to the researchers at the time? Oh, but I also said hope was a part of the story. Well, despite the only known live plant being gone, we know there are more out there somewhere. How can we possibly know? I bet you already guessed. The beetles are still being found with fresh pollen of this flower stuck to their underbellies. While it remains hidden, thanks to these horny little insects, we know it isn't completely gone yet. I think that's pretty cool. This episode completes a three-parter of household topics. On episode 27, I talked about household paper products. On episode 38, it was major household appliances. This week, I am finishing it off before my break with a short segment on household cleaners. In the last year of doing this on my own, I've been figuring out what works for me. A one episode break in January and July makes sense for my life right now. Before January, it's all about family and the holidays, and before July, life for me is all about the yard and the garden. So I'll be planning this way going forward. So, what can I say about household cleaners? These are products which affect both indoor and outdoor air qualities. I've talked about VOCs, volatile organic compounds, before, and how prevalent they are in the air of many cities. VOCs are known to negatively affect indoor air quality and add to outdoor smog issues. This is actually a health issue, not just an environment issue. People with lung problems will have these things exasperated when VOCs are in high numbers outside. When it comes to health, actually, most cleaners are toxic to people, plants, and animals. As for the environmental impacts, there is a large CO2 output from transportation, as usual. Trucks over land, ships over sea. Then there are the ingredients and, of course, the packaging. 
Many of the containers are not able to be recyclable in order to contain the liquids they hold. And those which are recyclable are way too often just tossed with the garbage. These all go to the landfill and there's a good chance they still have a tiny bit of product in them. A thousand tiny bits put together makes no longer a tiny bit. So we have the containers which will last practically forever and those that get cracked or broken will leak out. Double whammy happening in the landfills there. Water pollution does occur in manufacturing, but the major cause is use of those products. What do we do when done with soapy water at home? Down a drain or outside, right? And what about when camping? Water gets dumped in the nearest bush. I'm not blaming anyone here, I'm guilty too. What else could we possibly do with it? If you know something I don't, email livingthroughextinction at gmail.com. Anything dumped outside eventually ends up in the waterways. That affects streams and rivers, sometimes getting all the way into our food chain. While the majority of contaminants are generally removed through water treatment facilities for what goes down the drain, ammonia, nitrogen, and phosphorus tend to get sent back out to the rivers and lakes. And these are all found in our average household cleaners. Ammonia is a multi-purpose household cleaner used on floors, sinks, tiles, and tubs and toilets. Nitrogen is found in glass and surface cleaning products as well as floor cleaners. Phosphorus is in 30 to 40% of dishwashing detergents. Substantial negative effects have been recorded on wildlife as a result. Some of these compounds accelerate plant growth where it's not needed, causing dense vegetation which can interfere with animal life. And when that dense vegetation decays, it decays in massive quantities, causing another whole set of problems. There are also adverse reproductive effects of different varieties shown in labs to be caused by cleaning product waste. Another part of cleaners is something called surficants. A surficant causes lower surface tension between two things, which is helpful for cleaning. Surficants are used as detergents, foaming agents, dispersants, and more. There are two problems with surficants. One, they biodegrade very slowly. And two, they actually biodegrade into a more toxic, persistent, and bioaccumulative chemical than they start as. So consider the function, the cost, and the health and environmental impacts when choosing a product. Obviously, like everything else, locally sourced is best because it eliminates a whole lot of travel emissions. Remember that labels are deceptive. The words environmentally friendly version are incredibly vague and could mean anything, like the tiniest reduction in just one of its toxic ingredients. The label eco-friendly has no legal definition that has to be upheld in order to call themselves eco-friendly. Just because the label says green doesn't mean anything. It's likely a deceptive tactic. You'd be amazed at what can be gone away with. We need to require our manufacturers to verify their green claims. A true green chemical will do the job without polluting the air in your home, as its VOC content will be much lower. It will also be concentrated, requiring less packaging for the same amount of clean. And that packaging will be biodegradable. The ingredients will be of a much lower toxicity and will take less overall energy to produce in the manufacturing process. That's a true green chemical. There are stamps of assurance you can trust. Green Seal and Safer Choice both review products for human and environmental effects. There are what is known as pay-for-play eco-labels out there though, so beware. If they just have to pay for the approval rating, then it's worthless. Look up and learn the registered eco-labels that are out there. These are known to have to be checked by outside sources in order to obtain approval. 
The Safer Choice program is managed by the EPA, which finally has proper people behind it again. The Safer Choice program certifies products which contain safer ingredients for both human and environmental health. Another one by the EPA is the DFE label. That stands for Designed for the Environment, and it's used for antimicrobial products. Both of these EPA levels have high standards, requirements which must be met, and testing to verify before they can be put on a product. Another offering from the EPA is an online search tool to help anyone who wants to find Safer Choice and DFE certified products. Just go to their website. I haven't had a chance to try it out myself yet, but apparently they've even put together sets of recommendations in different cleaning product categories. So there are lots of ways to make either small or large improvements when it comes to how most of us are cleaning. It's up to us in the end to care enough to make those changes. I didn't come across any really uplifting stories recently and I'm not feeling like sharing stories of my own right now. So when trying to figure out what to end the show with today, I decided to talk about humanism. What's more good newsworthy than an organization that's all about putting people first? Humanist-based morality is far superior and much better for the human race as a whole than any supposedly religiously based morality. A humanist sees that people are people. A humanist will not try to tell someone else who they are. A humanist will listen and care. To a humanist, prayer is a cop-out unless it is followed up with some sort of action. There are believing humanists in all religions, good people who, while holding a belief, still always put people first. As someone who never had that ability to believe in the supernatural, I am what's called a secular humanist. That is a humanist without religion. I also claim the skeptic moniker, so I guess I'm a secular humanist skeptic, or a skeptical secular humanist. I don't know. I went a long time where other people were always wanting to put a label on me and none of their labels ever fit. So at one point I found myself consistently using one of these three to describe myself in different situations. In a religious situation, I would say it was secular, non-religious. In humanitarian issues, I would state my humanism stance. In the face of general woo, I'd be a little miss skeptic. So if you're one of those people who absolutely has to put a label on me, then any one or combination of those is acceptable. My kids were raised as secular humanists with a passionately skeptical mother. No supernatural beliefs. Lots of books and time spent reading to them. I even had giant posters of evolution trees on the stairs going up to their bedrooms. It was my intention to teach them to feel happiness through making other people smile. For example, I would have them donate the toys they weren't using too much anymore to the children's hospital, and they would get joy and excitement out of the thank you cards that would come. I showed them videos of families from around the world when they were very small so that they understood from the beginning that we are not all that is. There are people all over the world living in all sorts of different ways with all sorts of cultures and beliefs. Most importantly, I think, and this part comes from my skepticism side, I taught them that I don't always know. When asked about something, I would share what I thought I knew and then end with, well, that's what I always thought anyway. It is possible that I've just always been wrong. We should look it up to be sure I got it right. That's how a skeptical parent answers a question to a child. But that's the skeptic side of me. This is about humanism. Where did that label come from? Do I even have a right to claim it? Sometimes I wonder if I do enough for others to really be able to even consider myself a humanist, especially right now when I haven't even seen anyone for over a year, let alone volunteered my time or effort for a cause. I haven't even been to a demonstration of any kind in... Two years? Maybe more. This is a statement from the main page of AmericanHumanist.org. Humanism is a progressive philosophy of life that, 
Without theism or other supernatural beliefs, affirms our ability and responsibility to lead ethical lives of personal fulfillment that aspire to the greater good. It goes along very well with skepticism as it considers itself, quote, a rational philosophy informed by science, inspired by art, and motivated by compassion. That statement there is everything I'm passionate about. Science, art, and fucking compassion. I fucking love it. I'm on board for everything humanism stands for, but my favorite humanist sayings are people before beliefs and action before or combined with prayer. Or as they like to say at the Freedom From Religion Foundation, get off your knees and get to work. I love what they're doing over at FFRF. We'll have to do a segment on them someday. I don't know if I'm worthy, but it's my hope that in being very vocal about humanitarian issues in my circles and on social media, and now even through this podcast, and by doing what I can to raise two more humanists to do good in the world, that maybe I've earned the right to call myself a humanist. I know I can always do better, though, and when the world gets back to normal, I really have to make a point of getting out there and making some people's days better. So ends episode 39. Thank you for joining me. May your health and sanity be replenished daily. Thank you to Jason Martin for composing the intro-outro for the show, and thank you to Kathy Rayner and Paul Palmer for their musical contributions on the violin and guitar. It's mid-year and I will be taking a single episode break over my holidays, so the next episode will be out on July 15th rather than the 1st. So I hope you will join me again in four weeks for episode 40 of Living Through Extinction. If you enjoyed the show and would like to show your support, the best ways to do so are to like, follow, rate, comment, and share. The Facebook, Instagram, and Pinterest pages are all under Living Through Extinction. And the Twitter account is under LTE Pod. There is also now a TikTok account under Living Through Extinction, but it's mostly videos of my mascot treat because I'm old and just don't know what to do with TikTok yet. The Patreon is under Living Through Extinction, and you can make contributions there to receive stickers, badges, masks, and more. For comments, questions, suggestions, or corrections, or to just say hi, email livingthroughextinction at gmail.com.